0: This office is regularly involved in the investigation of deaths where deceased subjects are recovered from water. Recently, this has included three unrelated deaths where the deceased subjects were reported missing during the latter months of 2002. These subjects were finally recovered during the last two weeks, having remained in the water over the winter. Based on this information, I would not recommend further intensive investigation by the Sheriff's Office at this time. This office does understand the burden this places on the subject's family, and we do extend our condolences to them.
1: This is the Simply Vanished podcast. Produced by Trembling Leaf Media in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Josh Newville. Officially, this is episode number five of season one, which is focused on the November 2002 disappearance of 20-year-old Joshua Cheney Gimond. My current plan is to produce three more numbered episodes about Josh's case, tentatively to be released on August 29th, September 12th, and November 14th. I will also host a bonus episode next week in which I will address a number of inquiries and comments from listeners. You may submit questions and thoughts via voicemail or the website. After the conclusion of season one, we will temporarily switch to an episodic format in which I will tell you about one unsolved disappearance per episode. We will continue to solicit tips for each case that we discuss. We'll share that information with law enforcement. And at some point, we'll switch back to a serial format with season two which of course will be another deep dive into one specific disappearance. Provided that we remain both helpful and successful, we will continue onward, alternating between serial and episodic format, covering unsolved disappearances throughout the United States and Canada. And as you've seen already, it's you, our listeners, that can make that happen. I continue to be blown away by your tips and your thoughtful engagement. Each week, we are receiving and processing more and more leads and including additional reports of threatening interactions between strangers and young men that occurred in the area of Josh's disappearance before, during, and after November 2002. Let's talk about one example of each. We are currently digging into a reported incident from a year or two prior to Josh's disappearance in which a man reportedly pulled a student into the bushes and held his head underwater. water. If you have further information about any such incident, we would very much like to hear from you. You can reach us via our tip line at 612-439-3646. Second, here's a report of another incident from mid-November 2002 from a tipster I'm calling Jeff. The incident he described happened within two blocks of that that Jeremy described in episode number four.
2: I bought a Snickers bar at the gas station, and
0: as I left,
2: I was walking out. On the birch there, and uh a car pulled up right next to me, and there was three guys in the car and the driver said to me, um, okay, how did he say He said, You know, do you know where the White House is and the White House was a party house in you know in Saint Joe at the time, so I just said You know it's up around the corner over you know over there, and I pointed it off to my left because that would have been where the law was and all that and uh <laughs> They opened the door then to the car, and they said, well, you know, get in, and, and we'll out, we'll go. And I I don't know why, but I was just, like, creeped out, because they opened the door, and there was a guy in the driver's seat, a guy in the passenger seat, and a guy in the back seat. And I'm a big guy at, like, Bills, and I play football, and uh, that guy in the back was probably bigger than me. And I I don't know why, but I was just creeped out, because... <laughs> Like, he would not look at me, but he had his arm up around the back seat of the car. And, you know, they'd tell me to get in the car, and I just was creeped out, so I took off. I just took off running behind. I ran behind the car, and there's a dirt alleyway there. I ran down the dirt alleyway, and as I started running, they peeled out um, and took off. And I came out like a block, a block or so down, and they actually pulled around to where I was coming out, and I darted back behind some more houses um, and I ended up, my friend was in town and so I was on the phone with him as I was running and he picked me up down some sales a little bit um, on that main strip there where the bars are. And yeah, that was basically what happened. Uh, <laughs> when it happened, like, I guess I have a little bit different recollection than like Jeremy was saying where everybody was on edge. I mean, I, I don't feel like the campus was super on edge. I mean, there was a lot of people out um, still at the bar and things. You know, the thing that got me, I guess, was, you know, I I hadn't listened to your podcast. Somebody told uh my friend, the one who actually picked me up, texted me right when we had the first episode. He's like, oh, you should listen to this. And I hadn't gotten around to it, and we got, to, we got together because another friend was back in town this weekend, uh, and we were all standing there and uh, – my friend, he was talking about the podcast. Was like, oh, yeah, i got to listen to that. And then uh, my friend, who I had actually told this, you know, I told him about this story, so I do have people who can corroborate that. Um, he's like, yeah, you had something happen to you like that. You were freaked out that night. And I, I was. I remember, you know, I remember just, I don't know why, but I took off because they just were not, I know, it just not se- seemed like they should be there. <laughs> and they were. And then the description that Jeremy gave then um, from your podcast, like, the door to the car was longer. I do know that. The car, I want to say, was like a brownish-tannish color. I can't remember the interior color. I just remember the guy in there in the back seat looking straight ahead with his arm around the the seat. Um, they were wearing ball caps, and, they, you know, I remember them having, like, facial hair. Um And, yeah, the door thing, when he said the door of the cars were longer, that really got me. Um, And I want to say it was more like a hatchback wagon, you know, like a wagon type of car. Um, And I do remember the rack on top. So that was, yeah.
1: And here's another incident, as reported by a tipster I'm calling Mitchell, from the fall of 2008.
3: I remember it was a beautiful kind of, you know, crisp fall uh, evening around dusk probably like around, you know, seven, seven thirty 30 or so. I had driven to cash wise in St. Cloud, you know, where a lot of, a lot of people that work at St. John's and students and stuff uh, go to shop and, you know, everything was normal. I parked my car, I was in the parking lot and I got out of my car, uh, started walking this to, to, you know, walking to the store. Um, <clears throat> and I noticed a large white conversion van with, For sure, one guy in the front in the driver's seat, um, I don't remember for sure if there was somebody else in the passenger seat, but he called me over and he said, he's like, hey, man, um, would you be interested in buying some very discounted Best Buy speakers? And so that that kind of struck me as being a little bit odd, you know, just coming out of nowhere. And so, you know, I, I sort of got a little bit closer to the van. And he's like, "Yeah, no, We're just trying to get rid of them. You know, we're getting getting rid of them dirt cheap. Uh, kind of, you know, whatever you have, you'll be willing to give you these speakers." And you know, kind of being the polite <laughs> Minnesotan that I am, I, I got a little bit closer, and th- they had the back doors of the white van open. And I should mention also all the uh, another thing that struck me. I remember when I looked at the van was all the windows were um, tinted, basically, so you couldn't you couldn't see inside and. So I got to the back of the van, still, I was a little bit weirded out. And so I kind of kept a little bit of distance. And when I, when I looked inside, you know, I was probably about maybe, you know, five, six feet away. I saw, uh, I'm fairly certain it was two men in the back, um, in, in, in the back of the van. And they had a few long sort of rectangular, what, you know, what kind of looked like speaker boxes in the back. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Hey, come here. Just come take a look. Come take a look at these speakers. and. You know, I kind of, you know, awkwardly kind of laughed it off and said, no, no, I'm good. You know, I'm, I don't really need new speakers. They're like, no, we gonna get rid of them. You know, they're, they're 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 really cheap. You know, just whatever you want to give us. And it's just like, you know, you have those instances of life where things strike you as very unusual and very just kind of freaky and wrong. And so I kind of said, no, I'm good. And I and I walked away. So I was a little bit uh, on edge after that and the part that really scared me was you know so i walked into Cash cashwise and i noticed that one of the guys from the van got it got out of the van and started following me if i had to describe the men in the van i would say probably age 35 to 45 you no know, kind of what what you would like n- nobody that really stand out to me, you know, kind of dressed in sort of like the denim and flannel type look, you know, it was a fall, fall evening. Um, I think, you know, kind of scruffy maybe a little bit, but nothing that really made them, them stand out. Um, so I got into cash wise, saw the guy following me. And at this point, <clears throat> I really had like this sort of like animal instinct of panic. Um, and, you know, I, I, when I describe the situation in the past to, to friends and family, I tell them that, you know, you, you have experiences in life where you kind of like, oh, you know, somebody was after me. Oh, you know, this was a scary incident. This was like one of those instances where there was not a doubt in my mind that something really foul was going on. <clears throat> and so got into Cash Wise. I started walking around. I kind of, you know, p- put some things in the cart. Um yeah, I wasn't really in the state of mind to do my, my my full shop at the time, but the guy very suspiciously followed me throughout the entire store. I kind of did a few, you know, turns in different aisles and kind of you know swerved around a little bit to to see if it was just you know in my head or not. And sure enough, like I looked back and he would kind of be poking out from behind a um, behind an aisle or kind of you know just just kind of like lurking a ways back from me. Um, so at this point, I was I was incredibly scared. Um, I called my dad. Uh, and I told him what was happening. I was like, you know, I'm <clears throat> in mean, cash wise, these guys tried to some of these speakers out of their van, one of them is is tailing me. Um, and I don't I don't exactly remember what my what my dad told me. I think he said, you know, be, be careful, you know, if you need to call somebody call somebody but um, but you know, you know don't put yourself in a situation where where you're going to be in danger <clears throat> um so eventually you know got a few things i checked out um when i left the store i don't remember if he specifically followed me out of the store or if he kind of you know kind of trailed off and, and, and exited a different location but when i got to my car um you know, I, I looked around for the white van and sure enough, it was still sitting there. At this point, it was completely dark. So, you know, it wasn't an empty parking lot or anything, but it it was it was dark. And so I, I was quite a bit more nervous um, <clears throat> Threw my stuff in the trunk. And then I started driving back to St. John's and, you know, to make a situation that was already incredibly disturbing to me worse was that as I pulled out, um, the white van followed me. And at this point, you know, hair is standing up on my arms, you know, you kind of can feel it physically in your body, you know, kind of these these sort of tingle and, you know, in my head, just this very out of body experience, like as, you know, is this is this really happening to me? And so I drove, you know, got back on uh on 94 and and it, it followed me, kept following me. You know, it's not, it's not a long drive from St. Cloud back to St. John's. And at some point be, between you know the time that I left Cashwise and when I got off the exit to to go back to um, St. John's, they they trailed off at, at some point. I don't exactly remember when, and that was sort of the end of it. You know, I I, I was still pretty shaken. I you know I remember telling some of my friends when I got back about the about the um, experience, but but it was. Um, an incredibly distressing experience, and you know, being being, yeah, I guess, about six years after Josh's experience, I didn't necessarily make a direct connection to the to the two. You know, whether or not there is, um, I, I think my friends and I sort of you know discussed it sort of in passing, but um, uh, but it, it was one of those experiences where I'm like, you know, now reflecting back um i still get you know uh, r- really just kind of freaked out when i when i think about it and you know thank god that for whatever reason i was able to you know kind of get them off my trail or you know they left me or for whatever reason uh, they didn't um you know i didn't i didn't go into the van to buy the speakers or whatever because who knows what have happened but
1: so you think there were three possibly a fourth but you don't vividly remember anyone in the passenger seat right
3: I don't vividly, but you know, it was so long ago. I, it, it, there could have been two in the front for sure, one, and I'm about, you know, ninety nine percent sure in the back there were, there were two because that, the fact that there were two people in the back, struck me as. I guess more unusual is one person would have, you know in the, the would have been in the back, which I guess would have been a little bit weird too.
1: Were all the guys white?
3: Uh, from what I, from what I can recall, yeah, they were all white.
1: How about height and weight roughly?
3: The guys in the car, I, and again, like it was fall, so from what I can recall, they were dressed in sort of you know bulkier type jackets and jeans and and things like that. The guy that followed me into the store, <clears throat> I would say he's maybe like five eight, you know, pretty. I guess relatively average, five eight, five nine. Um maybe like one weight, maybe like I don't know, 150, 160. Again, it was hard to tell with like, you know, the kind of the the big like bulkier clothes on. Um I think brown hair, from what I, I can recall, I do I think he had a hat on as well. Um and I kind of remember him having sort of like a like a like a like a short beard or kind of scruff um on his face. How tall are you? I'm 5'10".
1: Did you call anyone when they followed you out of the lot?
3: I've thought about that. I think... I'm not 100% sure, I'm, but I'm pretty sure that I, I called my dad again and got him on the phone. And I was like, you know, now I'm in the car and they're, they're following me. And I believe that I stayed on the phone with him until I got back to St. John's just because I was that... Um, I was just that nervous. I was just that... You know, just kind of freaked out about the whole thing. Um, There's, you know, like I mentioned before, there's really no doubt in my mind that I had a narrow escape of something that could have been really dangerous and really, really bad.
1: In addition to bordering the largest freshwater lake in the world, if you account for every lake, river, and pond, the state of Minnesota has more than 124,000 bodies of water, including more than 43,000 lakes, with over 10,000 of those being larger than 10 acres in size. It's also true that accidental drowning has long been a leading cause of death among young men, especially where alcohol is involved. But of course, drownings are not always accidental. And as you know, disappearances, simply because they happen in the general vicinity of water, are not always caused by drownings. One of the most common questions I'm asked in this case is why we are so confident that Josh was unlikely to have drowned on the evening of November 9th, 2002. To answer that, let's start with November 11th and revisit the search effort. On that day, a massive search began on the entire campus of St. John's University, including by foot, horseback, divers, helicopter, and dogs. Between 2 and 3 a.m., Waite Park Police Department brought a German Shepherd patrol dog to aid in the search. Between 32 and 40 hours after Josh left Nate's Storm, a bloodhound from the Pope County Sheriff's Office led searchers to a culvert alongside a road on campus. At that point, where the canine lost the scent, it seems one of two things happened. Either Josh went in the placid knee to waist height water or he got in a vehicle. As you will learn, Sheriff John Sanner became convinced that Josh had drowned, seemingly ignoring the possibility that he got in a vehicle. Although that itself is extremely frustrating, particularly in light of the additional evidence we have and we've been uncovering, about random roadside attacks, I've also been concerned about this car versus water being a false dichotomy, particularly in light of the computer evidence suggesting the possibility that Josh made it back to his dorm room that night. So I spoke with a retired police officer and canine handler.
4: I partially got involved in law enforcement uh, due to the Jacob Wetterling incident that happened in Minnesota. Um, I graduated high school in 1990, and... Uh, really decided that I wanted to go into law enforcement try and uh, be involved in helping cases uh, similar to that or helping people in general. I um, was a police canine handler for about 16 years. Um, I had two dogs. Both of them were patrol dogs uh, that were both certified in tracking. I have also owned a company that selling and raising police dogs uh, specifically used for tracking. Uh, I've been involved in numerous uh, training throughout the uh, Midwest, uh, specifically a lot in the Minnesota area. I've been to seminars on tracking both in Canada and in different areas in the United States, including Texas, out on the East Coast. Um, I have trained with bloodhounds I have seen them work I have seen them operate and dogs are incredible and they can do incredible things but they also have some limits of what they can be able to do first of all the first dog that was brought in most of their training would be done looking for fairly fresh human scent not typically most patrol dogs don't train for 24-hour old area searches The bloodhound, you're still talking about 32 to 33 hours, which is a very long time for a track in a highly densely populated area, which this was at the time, at least being traveled by a lot of people who were just on their day-to-day walking or traveling, but also the people who were looking for Josh. I, I think it's very hard for a dog to be able to reliably lose a track in that area and be able to say that, well, they either got into a car or possibly they went over the bridge. I I don't know that I would base my investigation. I wouldn't say beyond any reasonable certainty that that is the case. I would not rely on investigation on that, especially if the dog handler was already told ahead of time, we believe this is the path that they took or were they just, or or were they basically just said, we want you to check the area for this, this scent? I also wonder if the dog could have been picking up their track walking there as well.
1: But Stearns County Sheriff's Office was certain that Josh had drowned or otherwise succumbed to the elements of the rural, heavily wooded university. Over the next few weeks, more than 200 volunteers and members of the Minnesota National Guard helped search the 2700 acre campus, including swamps, fields, and woodlands. In addition to diving and dragging the lakes, officials lowered the water levels and even drained one lake completely. Although campus buildings and tunnels continued to be searched, those searches were mostly conducted by volunteers and campus security personnel. Police failed to secure Josh's dorm room, including his computer, until the Thursday following his disappearance. And they waited weeks to interview everyone who was at Nate's dorm on the evening of Josh's disappearance. They didn't canvas gas stations and businesses along the freeway exits, and they never bothered to inform the public that they were aware of the reported attacks on both Anthony and Zach. If they had, perhaps they would have heard from Jeremy and others. The public messaging remained clear. There was no evidence to suggest that Josh left campus or was the victim of foul play. And the most plausible explanation, according to the Stearns County Sheriff's Department, was that Josh Guimon had accidentally drowned. Josh's parents began coordinating with the parents of Chris Jenkins and undertaking their own investigative efforts. Additionally, rumors started to percolate about whether a member of the St. John's monastic community had anything to do with Josh's disappearance. That community had arguably been infested with pockets of overtly sexual monks, many of whom had openly, even gleefully, preyed on young men. As 2002 came to a close, St. John's grew increasingly concerned about its public image. It began pulling on its levers of community influence and coordinating messaging with the Stearns County Sheriff's Department. Meanwhile, a St. John's employee tried desperately to pass along a tip to investigators about a possible suspect who worked at the university. The tipster grew so frustrated with being ignored by detectives that they anonymously passed along the tip to Josh's family. Josh's dad then pleaded with county attorney Janelle Kendall to ensure that investigators did more than just search for a body. He begged her to pursue other leads, including those on campus, and even if that meant subpoenaing members of the monastic community and the abbey itself. Kendall, whose husband worked at St. John's, flatly refused. Nor did she have someone take over the case who didn't have such a perceived, if not actual, conflict of interest. In late February, Chris Jenkins' body was found in the Mississippi River near downtown Minneapolis. Initially, police incorrectly classified his death as an accidental drowning, only to later correct that and classify it as a homicide. Meanwhile, at the end of March 2003, the body of another college student surfaced. During the same two-week period as Josh and Chris's disappearance, Michael Knoll had gone missing in nearby western Wisconsin. Knoll's death, which does appear to have been an accidental drowning, solidified Sheriff John Sander's view that Josh had drowned. Josh's family was desperate to put that theory to rest in hopes that detectives would actually start investigating all of the potential explanations for Josh's disappearance. On April 1st, 2003, Brian Guimone went to the Stearns County Board of Commissioners and asked them to put pressure on Sanner to bring in the Colorado-based Trident Foundation, who was widely seen as one of the best underwater body recovery teams in the world. They have never cleared a body of water in which a victim was later found. What better way to put the drowning theory to rest? That brings us to April 2nd, 2003. And I'll be honest, what I'm about to share with you makes my blood boil. And although I have been cautious not to get too sidetracked with all of the incompetence and even downright nastiness that has previously led this investigation astray, this one cannot be ignored. It's not yet entirely clear who pulled the levers to make this happen, but on the morning of April 2nd, 2003, a medical examiner from a different county faxed a memo to Stearns County. The sender's name was Dr. Michael Boyd McGee. And side note here, Madeline Barron and others have uncovered repeatedly terrible conduct by McGee. Feel free to Google him after this episode. Here is what he wrote.
0: This memo is prepared following recent discussions regarding the above-captioned death investigation and the possibility of locating and recovering the subject. It is my understanding that this young man was reported missing on November 9, 2002. Despite an extensive investigation carried out by the Stearns County Sheriff's Office, as well as other agencies in the area, they have been unable to locate and recover the subject. Further, given the location, there is a strong probability that the subject's body may be within a body of water. This office is regularly involved in the investigation of deaths where deceased subjects are recovered from water. Recently, this has included three unrelated deaths where the deceased subjects were reported missing during the latter months of 2002. These subjects were finally recovered during the last two weeks, having remained in the water over the winter. We have been informed that this is due to the cold winter and the associated cold water temperatures and ice formation. Based on this information, I would not recommend further intensive investigation by the Sheriff's Office at this time. I believe the probability of locating and recovering the subject may increase with time, as in the above cases. This office does understand the burden this places on the subject's family, and we do extend our condolences to them. If I can be of further assistance in this matter, please contact me.
1: How McGee, or anyone with half a brain, thought that he had the foundational basis to give that advice is beyond me. And while this podcast is not the forum for it, and so I'm going to say this and move on, someone should be demanding answers because michael mcgee didn't fire off that fax on his own volition clearly someone asked him for it and for pretty obvious reasons and those people should be required to explain that conduct alas Stearns county and st john's agreed to allow the trident foundation to search the campus lakes although josh's family was responsible for raising the requisite funding and st john's was adamant that the trident foundation could only come after graduation The Trident Foundation would ultimately be arriving during the second week of May. And so, for a month and a half, John Sanner engaged in an all-out blitz to find Josh's body before Trident showed up. He brought in sonar, helicopters, more divers. They dragged the lakes again. He even brought in another county sheriff's department. And eventually, he brought in cadaver dogs. For a while, the dogs obsessed over an area of Stump Lake that ultimately proved fruitless. And a quick glance at Google Maps' satellite view explains the likely reason for that confusion. That area of the lake is fed by runoff from St. John's 150-year-old cemetery. In mid-May 2003, the Trident Foundation searched all three lakes on campus. They used sophisticated equipment and some of the best personnel in the world. Ultimately, they cleared all three lakes of Josh. And so now you can hopefully see why everyone close to this case, including the current personnel at Stearns County Sheriff's Department, is no longer interested in pursuing the theory that Josh accidentally drowned. But John Sanner didn't let go. He started peddling theories like Josh was eaten by snapping turtles, or maybe he sunk in quicksand. Yeah. Yeah. A soil conservation expert who works for the state ultimately wrote a letter explaining that there is no such quicksand in that area. So what did happen to Josh? Well, let's not make the same mistake that John Sanner did, because the answer is, we don't know. We know that it's more likely than not that Josh did not drown, at least accidentally, and not in the lakes on St. John's campus. Beyond that, all we can do is follow where the evidence leads. And right now, there is evidence leading in a lot of directions, some more robust than others. But the only way we are going to help the detectives that are truly trying to solve this case now, to get it across the finish line, is to give them actual evidence. So keep talking, because what you're doing, it's working. And as we continue to have these conversations publicly and privately, we are giving actual hope to Josh's family and friends who for a long time wore buttons that talked about keeping hope alive.
0: I've been searching in the dark,
4: trusting every clue I have. the truth has
1: not been told is every corner of these
4: woods is hollow i can't see
1: The light is breaking.